surprised me. <laughs> well, well, I'll tell you what, the, the co-host role uh, is essentially to be a, a representative of the audience. So it's no, it's, <laughs> there's no expertise required. This is why, this is why Adam Gordon's always on it. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> no expect, no expectations of expertise with, uh, with him. So, um, so yes, that's how it is. Anyway, folks, we are live, everybody. Uh, welcome to Brain Food Live on Air, bringing it to you every week. Usually it's Friday, but we're bringing it to you on Thursday because we have got a special for you today. Um, uh, this is the return, actually, of something I've really missed, which is what I call a Brain Food Virtual World Tour, um, where essentially we go to different regions in the world and we have communications with local recruiters about what the recruitment challenges are the universal recruitment challenges that we all have, but how they handle the local conditions, local constraints, the local issues. Um, and that we've done a load of regions so far. We haven't done this one, so I'm particularly pleased that we're bringing it to you. Um, and we're going to be talking about hiring in Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states. That's something that I have no experience in. I do believe I might be visiting Saudi Arabia in a couple of months. I'm really excited to learn more. Um, and we're using today's conversation as basically a platform uh, to learn more about the region and also educate ourselves about what it is to be a recruiter in uh, in this region. Um, so uh, let's do some sound checks. First of all, I want to make sure everyone can hear me okay. Um, folks, you're watching this on Crowdcast. Let me know whether the audio and video is fine. Just let me know in the chat. Thumbs up, thumbs down, whatever it is. Doesn't matter. Let me just check quickly on is how low fi we are, Katrina. I've got to check on my mobile phone. <laughs> <laughs> you know, professionals actually have like multi screens and stuff. I've, I literally, my multi screen is my phone. Um, so let me just and a check. Flashlight whether... for your light, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like so low fi, it's embarrassing. Um, but no, we are live on LinkedIn. So, LinkedIn, please say hello. Let me know whether you can hear me okay. Give me a, 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 a some sort of emoji there. Got 40 people watching LinkedIn. Great to see that. And we should be blasting this out on Facebook and Twitter as well. So, we've got multi channel broadcast. And it looks like we can hear everyone okay. Um, that's fantastic. Um, let's welcome our co-host. Um, and I believe it's the first time you've been a co-host, Katrina, even though you have been a multiple guest. It's Katrina Hutchison O'Neill. Uh, great to see you, Katrina. Uh, thanks for joining me Hi. in the co-pilot seat. Thanks for having me. Yeah, for long, long time listener, first time caller, right? So you keep saying, but you've been regular on the show, and you've been you've been back multiple times because of your your wonderful chat. Um, and today's a special one also because Join Talent is also the sponsor for this show. Um, and as we have a new feature, which we basically saying, okay, the CEO of the company has the opportunity to directly address the audience and tell people why they should care about Join Talent. Um, I'm pleased to say that you've got we've got a captive Katrina here, so she has to do it. <laughs> so go I'll ahead. Yeah, you got to yeah. say it. Um, go ahead. Yeah. No, happy. So, so hopefully, hopefully, many people have heard of us by now. We're we're still comparatively young. So JT is just over four years old now. How did that go by so quickly? Um, and we kind of started from a place of myself and, and my co-founder having been career internal directors of talent acquisition, doing big global roles, feeling like there was really something missing around TA management consultancy. Um, you know, the way normally you get those people turning up to the office and it's like, who drew the short straw? They have to do the TA bit of the project, but they're all HR generalists. And that always bugged me. Um, and we thought, goodness, couldn't in-house TA people do it better? Um, and then we also looked at the RPO offering and, and what was out there and felt that there was a better solution. And 
it seemed like other people agreed with us. So four and a bit years later, we are now um, nearly 250 people across 21 countries. And I'm super excited about it today because the Middle East is somewhere that I've been spending a lot of time recently. Um, we were really honored to have been selected by the Ministry of the Economy for UAE as their partner for their technician strategy. I don't know if you know about that, Hung. Um, so we're working really closely with the government there who have been phenomenal, like so supportive. I think they're a model for how other governments could work in supporting businesses in this way. So I think I'm going to be spending a lot more time there. In fact, I'm there literally in five weeks from now. So really excited to learn more today and uh, excited to meet some of the guests. Yeah, fantastic. And, and one of the things that is so obvious and became obvious to me as a person that does a lot of live streaming and a lot of content and what have you, um, is that, you know, like we're very we're very Anglo centric in the recruitment world. Um, like most of the content, I mean, I know it myself, curating the newsletter, 90% of the content is either from a US author or from a UK author. And then occasionally yeah. you get somebody else popping in. And obviously it's an English language sort of medium. So we can expect that a little bit. Uh, but at the same time, there's like massive like blocks in the, on the planet where we know nothing. And I know nothing. It's like complete blind spot. Um, and then you realize actually there's millions of people living there and there's millions of people doing stuff. And there's actually loads of recruitment going on. Um, I was speaking to a friend of mine actually maybe two months or so ago and he was talking to me about Saudi actually. And he was saying, look, you know, you don't even know what type of transformation is going out on there. We are talking one of the biggest projects planet-wide in terms of social transformation, in terms of the, the huge infrastructure projects, the digitization of governance and all this. And it's like, okay, in if you're in the know, there is a lot going on here that we need to know about. So this is part of the reason why we're here, folks. Um, okay, good stuff. So let, let's talk about the, so your interaction with the Middle East so far, Katrina, is fairly nascent, but it looks like it's getting somewhere. You've got one great relationship and it looks like this is an expanding part of the, uh, the, the business strategy for JT. Yeah, so we've been out there now, um, based out in Dubai for, goodness, over a year and a half now. And we've got team members based out there. We've had, I think, our longest serving team member has been out there for um, a couple of years now working for JT. Um, I think Susie Holden, who works for us out there, has lived out there for 31 years. And even when you go to the Ministry of the Economy, they're impressed by that. She's usually been there longer than most people around the table. So we've got a lot of expertise there. Um, but it's been, you're right, it's been a lot of work um, learning about the region. Like I'm used to in my career going into different countries. I remember falling flat on my face in the early noughties when I first took over managing India as a region because I made assumptions about, about cultural differences. And um, it took me three months to realize when I thought people were saying yes to me that they were not saying yes. And they were definitely not going to do that thing that I thought they were going to do. Yep. And I, I'm, I've kind of learned from that experience, so I don't make those assumptions. But still, that learning curve for me in UAE and Saudi has been really, really big. Like some of the things you wouldn't think, Hung, like even some of the rules around, particularly in, in Saudi, um, have, like how many uh, Saudi nationals you have to employ. If you're mm. setting up a HR department, your HR leader has to be a Saudi national. Um, things like that, the way pay works differently as well in UAE. So that's been a big learning curve, but it's such an exciting place to be. And I had to get rid of a few of my, my kind of um, unconscious biases, I guess, about what the region was like. 
especially as a female business leader, I've never felt more welcome, felt safer than I do when I'm walking around Dubai, for example. Um, so it's somewhere that I'm really excited for us to build a team as well as build the business. Yeah, some really good points there. And I think particularly important for, let's say, the future style of business, which I think you know, one of the strengths of JT have been is that you've all, you, you've and when you launched it, it was like remote first, distributed everywhere. So inherently, you're going to be an international, multinational business. Um, and if that's the sort of company that we might see as a template for the future, then actually the, the, the awareness of cultural nuance is critically important. Um, because even the, the the very binary yes no type of thing is very clear, but there'll be other stuff that is not as binary yes no, but subtle things like how do you motivate someone? That's not obvious unless you have the cultural nuance. Um, and if you're running twenty one, you know, a, a, a team with twenty one different countries, you know that might have such a degree of sophistication that if you're just blundering forward with your particular perspective. It's 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 gonna you're gonna run into problems that you didn't realize. It's gonna affect your productivity, your profitability, and all the rest of it. So, so folks, I mean, I'd be very interested to know from you guys. Like, are you running an international team? Um, and if so, you know, what kind of sort of uh, things have you learned from your international members that perhaps you know cause you to think, oh, I had no idea that this was the case. Um, because guess what? That's going to be probably a prevailing feeling for most managers and TA people going forward. Um, okay, cool. I think it's time to bring on some of our guests. Let's go ahead and, and, and do that. Um, we've got some local recruiters here um, and HR folks, um, and we're going to try and bring them on. Hopefully, they can educate us as to how things are going there. So we've got Hicham. He's coming on. Uh, we have Majed here as well. Let's do that. Um, and we should have Ahmed, if I can find him. Uh, no, no Ahmed as of yet. So I hope he can come. Um, but if not, we'll bring him on. Carlos, I, I see you, but we'll bring you on in a minute. Let me just make sure that everyone can come on properly. Who is this? Is this Hicham? Hey, hey, hey. How are you doing, Hung? I'm very well, Hicham. Welcome to the show. Um, whilst you're on first, Hicham, I wonder whether you could introduce yourself. Who are you and what it is you do? <laughs> yeah, well, thanks for having me. Um, I've evolved in the tech industry for the last 18 years. Uh, I worked for companies like Dell, like IBM. Uh, spent seven years with IBM. And basically, if you work in a company like IBM, you never get to do one job at the same time, right? So you get to do two, three jobs at the same time. Um, so my first job was uh, basically leading uh, talent acquisition for Middle East and Africa. And here we're talking about 70 countries across five time zones. And I had um, a team of uh, 40 uh, amazing colleagues back then. And my second job, I was helping with strategy and talent brand for IBM uh, globally based out of Dubai. Uh, fast forward seven years, uh, I moved to Majid Al-Futaim. And I think a lot of people who live in uh, UAE know what, uh, who is Majid al uh, It's a regional lifestyle conglomerate. Um, they operate in a lot of countries. They have 48,000 people working in there um, for them. And uh, yeah, I mean, I was the director of talent acquisition for all things technology, ranging anywhere from analytics to digital and tech. And um, amazing three years, a lot of learning, a lot of exposure to, uh, to great knowledge. And recently, and I'm talking to you like, what, six to seven weeks ago, I landed at Property Finder, who's the leading marketplace when it comes to connecting um, home seekers with real estate agents and, and brokers. So as their VP of talent acquisition. So I'm very happy to be with you guys today and uh, looking forward to a great conversation. 
Fantastic. And Thanks you know what's really us. funny, Hung, is how small a village it is that Hitcham and I have actually met in person before as well, even though I've only been to Dubai a handful of times. So yeah. lovely to see you again. Thank you. Great stuff. You and we have Majed Al-Sheri here as well. Majed, thank you so much for joining us. Um, for, for the people who don't know you already, would you like to introduce yourself very quickly? Who are you and what it is you do? Yeah. Um, hi, everybody. And um, it's it's a pleasure to, to be a part of the uh, discussion. And thanks for the invitation. Um, my name is Majid. I've been working in HR for a little bit over um, 11 years. Uh, I've worked with um, multiple companies in Saudi with different types of ownership, uh, private, uh, privately owned companies, publicly listed, semi-governments, uh, and even started up my own uh, my own agency and headhunting and uh, consultation boutique. Uh, I'm working currently uh, with one of uh, the Saudi Giga projects uh, with uh, with Roshan, um, uh, heading the um, organizational uh, development uh, there. Fantastic stuff. And thank you so much for the intro, um, Majed. Um, I've just spotted Carlos as well. Let me bring him on also. Uh, he's a person with extensive experience of this area as well. Um, whilst Carlos is coming on, I wonder whether we could just kick off with, um, we're addressing a global audience here. And I think the vast majority of people paying attention to this conversation probably are not familiar at all um, with recruiting or working in Saudi Arabia, if we can focus on Saudi, first of all. Um, hey, Carlos, how are you doing? Good to see you. Um, yeah, good to see you too. Carlos, while you're here, why don't you quickly introduce yourself? Um, who are you? What it is you do? Well, we recruit for Saudi Arabia since 20 years ago. Basically, we are based in LATAM. Uh, and uh, we do sourcing and recruitment for Aramco, Sabic, many of this region. All the uh, Latinos that you see in Saudi Arabia and is growing, basically uh, our agency is the company who are doing that. I live in Saudi uh, years ago, like in the 98, when uh, we go through Bahrain for internet. So it's amazing when you visit now Saudi Arabia, you will get Chuck. What is, I've just arrived last week, <clears throat> what is going on in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia, for all of us who know the region, is uh, probably the more <clears throat> challenging and beautiful place to grow our business. So very welcome to this conversation. Thank you very much. Great to have you. And to be honest with you, I didn't realize that you had that length of experience. So it would be very interesting to compare over time, you know, what your verdict is. Uh, but let's draw it back to the question about the audience not potentially being aware of Saudi Arabia, uh, if we focus on Saudi first, but probably it pertains also to the rest of the Gulf states. Um, what is the, the like the first thing people should know um, if they let's say I'm moving to Saudi Arabia or perhaps I'm recruiting someone or my boss tells me, Hong, I need to hire someone that's based in Saudi. Like, What's the first thing I need to know that I would not know um, if I'm not familiar with the, the territory? Um, can uh, can you help us with that? First of all, uh, Hicham, let's go to you first. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's um. It's a fantastic question because uh, obviously there's a lot of things that happen in Saudi Arabia and the GCC countries holistically that are quite different from the way we do talent acquisition, for example, in Europe or uh, in, in the US. Uh, in this region, we have the complexity. We don't have necessarily the scale. In areas like the US and the Europe, you have the complexity and the scale, right? But once you land in Saudi Arabia as a country, for example, uh, the first thing you need to know is there's a strong emphasis on hiring local talent, right? 
this is part of a mandate this is part of a, a country direction this is part of everyone's dna uh, especially in the in the hr spectrum uh, anywhere the second thing that you need to know is there's a genuine interest in preserving the social and the cultural um, behavior of uh, not just the citizens, but also the company. And I can go on and on uh, on this, but essentially it's uh, much more around increasing the local employment of nationals in a way to maintain the cultural identity and ensure that the citizens of the Saudi Arabia and also the, the countries uh, around are playing a prominent role in shaping the future of the society. Right? Yeah. Uh, so on, on, these are on that... two things. Basically, you need to know is local uh, emphasis on local talent and the and the cultural aspect as well. This is something I do know something about uh, because I were obviously I'm, I'm ignorant. But uh, I, the, the first the first thing I, I recognized when I landed in Dubai for the first time was this law that the local people told me they had was that it was a, a, there was a, a quota like you needed to hire a certain percentage of people into the company that were local citizens of the business in order to operate as a business. And for folks, the historical context of all of this is that you have to go back to colonial era uh, and you have to understand that this area um, was predominantly the first types of companies that arrived in this area were, were colonial companies. There were UK, US oil companies effectively. Um, and there was obviously since the decolonial era, there was a more of an emphasis to say actually our nationals need to have a bigger part in some of these critical industries and not have the, the the resources siphoned off and siphoned away. So there is a law. Is there actually a quota? What's the number in Saudi Arabia? Is there literally? Hey, listen, there needs to be a percentage. Um, and if, uh, is uh, that's a straight question. I mean, is is, is 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 there a number there, or how does it work? No, it's 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 it differs. It it's defined by industry, and there's a. There's a ranking. I mean, there's platinum and there's green and there's a red and so on and so on. So depending on the size of your organization, depending on the industry you're operating, uh, depending on a whole lot of criteria, then you're ranked in that system and you're basically looking good or looking pretty, pretty bad. Right. And uh, yeah, so um, the quotas in numbers, they are it's an you know, it's a, it's a difficult formula to formulate right now in the call. Yeah. Okay. I understand. This reminds me a little bit of how South Africa works as well. I think um, I know I've got a few uh, South African friends in the call here, but they also, I think, have a very kind of a quite a complicated quota system. Um, but there is then a leveling. So you, you go to levels depending on how close you are to quota. Um, and if you're not hitting the right levels, actually, you, you will not be able to trade. Uh, with other companies at a higher level or something. So there's like a, a real kind of like a lot of nudges to get you to that point. Uh, Katrina, you probably know something about that with the extent of South, South Africans that uh, you've got in your business. Yeah, and, and I think, Hung, and actually I'm really interested to hear the the views of, of everybody on the panel about this. One of the, the challenges, and I think the circles that we need to square when we're hiring in, in UAE and Saudi, particularly Saudi, where it's such a young, it's a young and vibrant population. It's what 60% of the population is under 30. Um, and you've got this huge explosion now in tech roles, digital, data, cybersecurity, where you're wanting people with 10, 15 years experience, but they're not there in the local market. And there's going to be this, this, um, this sort of chasm while we catch up. How, how are you struggling with that or dealing with that in your companies? And how do you balance that out? 
That's a great question. Uh, Majed, I wonder whether you want to tackle that one. Um, the, the the kind of, I guess, the experience gap, perhaps. Um, and how do you marry that with the sort of the requirement to hit the, 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 the sort of uh, uh, localization numbers? Yeah, um, sure. Just just adding regarding the um, required or mandated uh, nationalization levels, um, it's part of a, of a bigger picture. So the target isn't only uh, to just, you know, uh, grant fair employment and so on. Uh, it is within uh, parameters and KBIs for the Saudi region uh, to have a certain percent, a, a very low uh, single digit uh, percent for unemployment. Uh, it also, it's also one of the parameters in, uh, in supporting and fostering um, uh, local content. So even you as a company or as an employer, you do have your own nationalization uh, rank as a part of your assessment when you're, uh, you know, going for uh, for projects and tenders and so on. So you will have some sort of multiplier, whether in positive or negative, increasing your favors and winning your own deals and, and projects based on also um, how how localized your content um, is. And, and regarding the uh, technical skill gap, um, luckily for us, um, relatively, uh, Saudi is even uh, adopting so many uh, emerging technologies. So now in the local market, um, it's it's only natural and it's it's very common now to see companies trying to hire for um, DevOps engineers, trying to set up um, um, you know uh, uh, data offices with with the whole spectrum of um, analytics, advanced analytics, uh, engineering, um, you name it. Machine learning is is also um, growing and we're going to um, you know having some companies where they have even to uh, develop their own curriculum to hire. Uh, brilliant graduates and enroll them in GDBs. Uh, people are also being uh, offered massive amounts of, of training. Training industry is thriving in Saudi. Moreover, regarding the, the technical gap, the, the Saudi government has tackled this or started to tackle this with the uh, at least to have entrance uh, to the, especially the tech sector, uh, whether in data or technology or cybersecurity. Um, and now, even recently, they're trying to uh, to foster or even increase the pipeline for uh, technical project managers and technical uh, project managers. So there are rehabilitation, retraining, upskilling uh, programs that are targeting. For an example, you'll have someone graduating with a degree in mathematics having difficulty to find a direct job uh, in this domain. Um, they will be they will be enrolled in uh, boot camps and programs where they will be you know trained to to pursue a career path in, in data analytics, um, for example. So uh, the whole. Um, the whole notion is, is uh, of the uh, employment and, um, you know, raising the bar in terms of, um, of quality of life. Uh, one of the KBIs of, uh, of the Saudi vision, um, some of its sub-KBIs are around offering better employment, uh, increasing the nationalization. And by the way, Saudi is now uh, hiring and headhunting on uh, an ever-presented level uh, of the um, global top talents, uh, the organization I'm working with. Is, is hiring uh, globally with, with top talents, and we're targeting uh, we're targeting the whole globe. Uh, currently, we're around 100. Uh, sorry, we're, we're around 1,000 employees, and we're approaching 40 different um, nationalities. Uh, yes, we're maintaining our platinum uh, criteria or uh, ranking in denationalization or in um, system, uh, even though this has never hindered us from, you know, approaching the uh, the right talent, build the projects, work in the knowledge transfer. I do think there is a place for any top talent um, in, in Saudi Arabia, especially with the introduction of another or one more fifth giga project just last month. Um, and yeah, uh, more to come.
great overview, Majed. Thank you very much for this. Um, I, I think the, the, I mean, thank you for some of the comments on onto the screen there as well. I think some of our South African friends are aware of, of this, and the, there is a, a familiarity here. Um, from a TA perspective, like if you're, if I'm a big company, let's say, um, do I divide my TA team? so that one part is looking for local talent and the other part has a wider remit to look for if you like global talent is is because it, it seems to me that would make sense um from a recruiter perspective you know it is simply about building network building knowledge of a particular market space etc cetera, etc cetera. it would it not make sense sense to specialize in that way and is that actually what happens um any opinions there i'll throw it open i mean uh, again i'm not sure whether there is a consistent uh, strategy there or or, or or different companies you know tackle this in a different way yeah I, I, i'm happy to take this one uh, right so there are pros and cons in doing things in in the two different ways that you have outlined right uh, on the one hand if you set up a standalone um structure that caters for localization then they may put a one-size-fits-all approach, right? And agnostic of everything that goes around. Uh, the flip side of the other approach is you're actually making sure that localization is only focused on one area and is not pervasive all across the roles, right? So in my opinion, um, setting up a standalone structure might help you uh, drive more focus in employment branding in effort in tackling this demographic in, in a completely different way uh however uh, on the other side having a structure that actually you have to embed the localization all across the organization to ensure that there's consistency across all the strata that you're you know uh, targeting is as important as driving the localization effort because at the end of the day it's also about showing a genuine concern in driving localization across the board if, if it's only a numbers game, then it's very easy. Katrina said in the beginning, and I totally agree with her, more than 60% of Saudi population is aged less than 35 years old, right? So it's very easy to go on early talent and go on conferences and do job fairs and do events and so on and so on. If it's a numbers game, then the game, the, 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 the numbers will be kind of honored very, very quickly. But the most interesting challenge is what? Is ensuring that there's equal distribution of locals across senior executives, across tech and digital, across female, for example, across uh, senior managers and so on and so on. That will show that you, you, don't, you, don't, you don't have a, an action plan, you have actually a strategy. And a strategy is to infuse that local touch in everything you do. And I would like to complement your, your, your point. And we, we, we are more focused only in technical. Um, and now we are entering another areas but um usually what, what you find there is that when they are targeting for locals in in, in petrochemicals or in energy uh, it's difficult to get uh, experienced people that you need for example for certain uh, uh operations because it all all the in industries there i mean you have jubel or you have uh the other side of the country so it's just move from east to west or west to east but it's not so the challenging thing is also to attract the, the overseas people these a few in this moment so i think it's a long-term strategy building the employer brand they need to start working on that the the big corporations because they have a large corporations large corporation but they are working 
us uh, the I mean, what they call agencies. They they used to work with agencies that provide for them bunch of people, and it's not. They need to add value in the in the mature of the industry of talent acquisition. The, I mean, you mentioned the size of organization. Maybe that's something also for us to quickly discuss. Um, because it, it could well be that's also a kind of a characteristic of the Saudi economy um, that is unfamiliar with people elsewhere. Um, so it, are there, for instance, a bunch of companies or organizations that are dominant employers that overwhelmingly are, you know, I guess I'm, I'm, the analogy I would have is maybe similar to Germany. You know, sometimes you go to a certain town and it's like, yes, that's SAP town. And like everyone is <laughs> like everyone is actually SAP. And it's true. It's like 500,000 population. 495,000 are actually employees of SAP and the other 5,000 are actually... We have that in Ireland too, but it's a chicken factory, hum. It's not the same thing. It's like that's Roy Park time. That's it. I like... It, it does the same thing happen in, let's say, Saudi, where I guess the, Aramco maybe is like a huge organization. Is that like such a dominant player that, you know, half a chance everyone is working for them? Uh, how, how does it, it work is. in terms of... It is. Um, so, sorry, it is, but it depends on the on the region. So mainly if we're talking about the um, eastern and western um, coast where the oil and gas operations are, are huge and all of the, um, you know, uh, biggest corporations and, um, in the industry are based. Yes, you'll see, um, you know, um, Aramco and uh, Sabic and a few other uh, oil and gas uh, companies uh, existing there. Now even we're having uh, new giants uh, for example, the Neon taking a part and a very large uh, part of, of Saudi uh, building so many uh, other projects like, for example, even uh, the line. So uh, in some sense, um, yes, there are, you know, the, the new the cities and areas like Neon and there are the traditional, you know, uh, things around Cohen and Bahrain and Eastern province. Uh, and also on the western coast and, and Yamba Uruguay, you'll find even uh, the extension on the other side of the Saudi coast for the oil and gas uh, farms. Yet typically you'll find uh, whole towns uh, built and monitored and secured and, and everyone exclusively there is working at that at that place. So they would have even their own almost full ecosystem in terms of schooling, uh, businesses, um, whatever, you know, uh, governmental facilities even uh, available there. So, so this, thank you, Majed. This reminds me now also a little bit of the mining area in Western Australia, where it's it, it, again, like it's very clear that you have a dominant uh, organization in a particular region. And actually that organization then fulfills a lot of the uh, 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 services that you might expect the, the government to fulfill. Like they would provision the accommodation, for instance. They will provide even the entertainment because there's nothing there. It's in, it's in a mine somewhere. Uh, they provide the transportation because there's not a real track. Uh, so there's a helicopter ferry service and stuff like this. So uh, one of the challenges they have is oftentimes when you have, say, locations that are perhaps not me mega attractive from a lifestyle perspective, that they have to sort of offer excessive compensation in order to persuade people to do it. Um, they also have to do stuff like, OK, we'll make sure you have you know, these flights back to, to where your family might be because maybe your family don't join. Um, are, are these things sort of expected parts of the compensation packages for companies that are in locations that perhaps are not in, you know, let's say the capital cities or, you know, the major areas where people actually have, you know, a, a social life or, or a community life? Yeah, it is. It is already in place. And, um, and even those employers used to be the top employers and they have an edge in the market over anybody else. The market has 
uh, I would say, you know, um, the labor market in Saudi since 2017, uh, upon the, you know, the announcement of the Saudi vision has um, has went up on so many, uh, so many scales. So uh, to that point, those top employers in the oil and gas are now um, suffering even to retain uh, the talents, even if they're paying, you know, um, uh, higher bucks uh, for the for the employees. Now, uh, the the digitalization uh, of the um, economy and the uh, support of the um, going digital, even uh, in terms of even the governmental transactions, um, so created a huge demands on those employees working on the traditionally leading sectors like banking, oil and gas, and so on. Uh, now they are being uh, dragged and being attracted by other sectors. Now um, tech is, is leading in so many roles. Um, even the way government is operating, I, I honestly, I don't recall. I cannot even remember. When was the last time I went for a governmental agency for whatever service it is? Everything is being delivered to my to my doorstep, and if it's needed even to be physical, now we're going even with with electronic and digital uh, uh, wallets. So uh, even those employers, uh, even when they build their, I would say, safe havens, even when they try to secure, uh, you know, the retention of their employees. Uh, it's not enough anymore. They have even to to increase the uh, base pay. They have to, um, although they used to offer housing, they used to offer a huge uh, amounts in terms of overtime, etc. Uh, it is not um, you know attractive enough anymore, especially given that some some industries or some of the um, jobs that were almost exclusively available there now are being in demand in other areas of, of business and became suddenly a transferable uh, skill set, for an example, and maybe Hisham, he has seen it, and um, uh, even Carlos, maybe he has seen it in, 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 for example, health and safety and environment, was almost an exclusive thing for oil and gas. Uh, now it's being standardized, now it's being mandated even by Ministry of Human Resources and Social Development for organizations with certain quota after, in terms of number of staff or certain domains they are working in, they will need to have uh, someone appointed as an official uh, HS, HSE um, uh, professional. Uh, created a huge demand. Now the mandates for cybersecurity, for GRC, and so on. All of these functions, which were almost exclusive in oil and gas and banking, now are being mandated uh, all across the board. That's very interesting. It's very interesting when you have incumbent industries that have probably been used to being the employer of choice almost by default. Again, I'm using the SAP example. You know, they could sit there and think we're SAP, we'll get it. And I'm sure you have the, the, the it seems like a similar scenario in the Gulf states and, and, and Saudi. Uh, but then you have the new coming sort of tech organizations, you have the new digital services. And it sounds like you have a lot of like, modernization mandates from the government which is just creating like industries to say okay now this person needs to exist in the business and suddenly that demand is there which i guess is the reason why there might be this requirement for recruitment services i guess i mean uh, i go to carlos and, and katrina on this because you're both providing different types of recruitment services but where is the demand you're seeing um from from this region right now um when people come knocking on your door or, or you encounter something are they looking for a petrochemical engineer? Are they looking for, you know, a health and safety officer? Like, what is there a pattern, discernible pattern on the demand? Katrina, go to you first. Sure. So, from our perspective, we we were really clear, and actually, that's how we've ended up working with um, the ministry on this. Um, our expertise, our deep, deep expertise, is actually finding that top international talent anywhere else in the world that it exists. We never wanted to be part of this red ocean 
in the country where everybody's fighting for the same candidates and you're moving people around from country or from company to company because our view is that creates competitive disadvantage for the companies that are in the UAE and in Saudi. Um, so what we're engaged to do is to, to kind of take that, whether it's 20, 50, 500 roles and go into the wider world, find those amazing people who are at the top of their game. And the, and the tricky bit is then helping convince those people to relocate and talking to them really knowledgeably about what life is like in whatever that city that they're going to be relocated to. And that's the, that's the difficult bit. And that's why we do need people with local knowledge um, to support in doing those roles. But biggest demand, and this is going to be no surprise to, to anybody, it's the same skill sets that, that everybody's fighting for. Tech roles, specifically in data and automation, they've got a really long, long um, hire time in country because of the, the shortfall in skill sets. The strategy that exists at the minute, particularly for UAE, to bring um, all of these new companies into the country over the next few years is going to massively require an influx of talent. There's no way that that can be sustained, even with the amazing initiatives that are going on at the, at the minute to try to upskill locals. The demand just is going to exceed that pretty quickly um, because it's a really attractive place for people to do business. So, so that's really the space that we play in, which I think is comparatively unique. But I don't know um, if, Carlos, you've got a different view because you're coming at it from a bit of a different angle. Well, yeah, uh, I mean, uh, it's I mean, it's because uh, I would like to go for the country entire and what is the strategy of Saudi Arabia, because the Saudi vision 2030 uh, and the new rules change completely what is the general environment for any expat. So to to go for your question, I uh, let's say, I mean, everything needs talent. I have clients in there retail business that says carlos we we will grow double this double number of stores in the next three years so you, you, you need everything um so but the, the good thing is that when you talk with the talent uh, what you're offering as a country is great because then you have uh green areas you have concerts you have sports events uh, you have more network to connect the cities. You have a railroad, a railroad from Jeddah to Mac to to the cities in that part, or you can get the rail from Damam to Riyadh the same day. So living in Saudi is becoming really like uh, a big opportunity. So in our business, in all the the people that is attending this invitation, and thank you. Hong, uh, it's a great opportunity to consider Saudi Arabia like a place where everything is growing, needs needs add uh, our experience in different areas, and it's place for everybody to to really offer services. And Saudis are a great people that is they grow international. Saudis are more multicultural than you can imagine because all of them grow with his parents working with people from everywhere. So, so I think so is, is, I don't know if this answered your question, Hong, but uh, yeah, all industries growing, all opportunities. I have what to say, Carlos, that, like, you touched on a point there that I thought that 
The lifestyle is phenomenal. And do you know what, Hung, all it took for someone to convince me that I should think of moving was one of my team members told me she never has to go put to the uh, petrol station to put gasoline in her car. She just messages on an app and some truck comes and fills up her car once a week. And I'm like, that's it, I'm done. That's the only requirement I have is to never have to go and fill up my own car with gasoline. I'm, I'm in. I didn't even realize that was a service, but this is exactly the sort of small nuances that kind of make the, the, it feel different. Um, like you just not know that this service exists or this concept would even be in anybody's mind. If you're in the UK, US or whatever, that would not be in your mind at all as a potential service. And then suddenly you realize, why, why not? <laughs> it sounds, sounds I bet pretty you feel good. Hard done by that you don't have it now. You're like, hang on a yeah. second. <laughs> We've it, been it, tricked. Why have we not got that? It is so that way. I knew this sort of, so I'm in Hong Kong right now. Um, and Hong Kong had amazing transport. We had in Hong Kong, they had this, something called the octopus card, um, which was like a decade before the oyster card, which is named, I believe, very closely to it. And it was just this one card, any transport, taxi, everything's connected you just need this one thing and now everyone is using it like a credit card because you can literally pay it for whatever it is you preload the thing any transportation any shop will take the card and it's like why is that not like you know why is that not everywhere um instead in the uk for instance you have to still buy multi-ticket um if you have to hop from one transportation to to the next uh, and it's a small problem yeah you know not not critical issue but it's an annoyance that it can go away if you if you know if you had the vision to stitch it all together um by the way on the note on sort of the demand for talent like everyone needs this talent it's i read, I read the other day that even place like the us for instance the reason why they're so they absorb so many like artificial intelligence people is because they they can't make enough of them um you know nobody has enough um so there is this huge competition i hate the, the term war for talent etc but i do believe for this elite digital tier it is similar to this deadly competition because whoever gets the talent in and ends up with a, a more sophisticated and skillful workforce, they're going to build the better future. Um, so I think everyone needs to change their minds on immigration, basically. Um, it's uh, it's something that, you know, we need to be uh, a lot more uh, uh, pro than uh, than we are uh, against. Uh, folks, this seems like a very natural way to have a little pause um, because we're already 45 minutes into this conversation. Um, and we always try and do this at the sort of start of, uh, at the middle of every conversation, simply because Brain Food Live is a conversation starting show. It's never something that should stop the conversation. Um, it's, it's a place that starts it so you can continue having it even when we go off air. Uh, so now is a great time for you to connect with everyone else who's on this call in order for you to kind of have that conversation after we finish and after we go off air. So why don't you take a moment, grab your LinkedIn URL and share it in the chat stream on Crowdcast. If you're watching this on LinkedIn or Facebook or Twitter, grab your LinkedIn URL as well, stick it into the comment thread there, and then connect with everyone who has done the same. Um, that way you will, worst case, at the end of this, you're going to walk away 20, 30, 40 people that care about this topic, might be interested in working in Saudi or the Gulf states, maybe already are, and you can potentially network and have conversations with those folks after we come off air. No reason why not to do this. Something we do uh, every week. 
Um, okay, cool. Looks like you're piling in there. By the way, folks, if you have any questions um, for any of our guests or panelists, use the ask a question feature at the bottom of the screen on Crowdcast. If you're watching this on LinkedIn, just pop it in the comments there and I'll make sure I'll grab them and we'll ask them towards the end of the day uh, and end of the conversation, should I say. Um, okay, cool. Let's talk about sort of some of the uh, other things that people need to be aware of. Um, let's say I've been offered a job in Saudi. For some reason, somebody thinks, Hong, you're a good idea. Uh, is come, come on, work over here. Um, like, what, like, do I need to learn Arabic? Uh, what is the scenario here? Like, is English good enough? I, I don't know. I mean, what, what's the language scenario? I would imagine, firstly, Arabic is very widely spoken, of course. So I assume anybody can speak, read Arabic is going to be fine. But let's say I'm, there's a bunch of people that don't speak this or, or can't read it. Do I need to learn? Um, and if so, that, is that the expectation? Let's say I moved to Germany. That is the expectation. And in fact, that's the rule. I think you need to learn the German and they'll, they'll teach you on it. So what is the scenario with language in Saudi Arabia? And if we can speculate also on the Gulf states as well, that'd be useful. Um, uh, Majed, why don't we go to, to you on this first? Yeah, thanks. Um, ironically, it will be the other way around. If you're, uh, if you're not proficient in English, you're going to face troubles working in Saudi. So um, being uh, able to, to speak Arabic is a plus, but mainly... What's required and mandated to uh, work and operate properly is is to be fluent in English. Um, right. take, take 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 me for an example. Um, um, when I when I was studying my uh, undergraduate degree, it was in HR. Um, it was like 15 years ago. Uh, our curriculum was um, a US uh, curriculum, and we had you know uh, the the books, the references, textbooks, etc. Um, you know. Uh, uh, very modern, and we even had um, we even had difficulties in uh, localizing whatever we were studying, especially when we're talking about the uh, federal uh, laws or the Equal Employment Opportunity Act and the implemented in the U.S. So it was a challenge on us as students and even as faculty to be able to to localize it and be able to uh, transfer the um, whatever academics and know how we we've learned to the to the market. So I've graduated around. 2010-11, and um, yeah, the curriculum I've studied was in English actually. And since my first day of work, I've been working in, in companies that are definitely by law mandated to operate in Arabic and English. But mainly, um, business operations are happening in, in, in English, and it is one of the criteria even to hire. Uh, unfortunately, it is one of the even uh, the criteria to hire the. Uh, uh, locals or even the uh, expatriates uh, within uh, Saudi or even coming uh, from Saudi. So, for an example, you're you're a, you're a software engineer who's enabled, um, who's let's say living in, in France or China, whatever it is, but it's not a non English, uh, non English speaking country. Um, hiring you overseas and getting you to, to Saudi will be almost impossible because you'll be having difficulties and operating and working in with no English uh, uh, proficiency. So yeah, uh, you can get by with uh, with English and the um, adaptation and the um, percentage of people who do um, speak up to, let's say, or down, you know, around intermediate and above proficiency in English, I would say it's even a majority in Saudi. 
Yeah, very, very interesting. I did not know that actually, um, but that's very, and by the way, of course, everyone should learn local languages and, and the, the people who are English language only, I think we're very conscious of the fact that typically, um, you know, uh, Brits and the US, to be honest, very monolingual, it's, it's something that oh, I need to work on. Uh, but it's interesting to know um, that actually that's not a barrier to entry uh, in, in Saudi. Uh, what is a bar barrier to entry though? I assume there is visa scenarios, right? So is, is it a case where the like the visa is um, dependent on the employer or is it a case where actually you can apply and get it and then you can move around employers? How, how, how does the visa system work? Um, anybody want to give this one a shot? Well, I have experience in the visa side because, I mean, we process the, the work visas. Still, work visa is a, a very difficult part. I mean, in, in particular, Saudi process has like the company should offer you the the the, the, the visa. Uh, they prepare in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and then when you have the visa approved, and depends on the on the quota they have for the visas, they can apply for a new visa. So when when you have in the other side process the visa for your candidate, you need to have like four steps. But in general, the degree, the bachelor's degree, is very important because the visa should be aligned with the bachelor's degree. You cannot be a lawyer with a, a business BA a bachelor's degree because when you apply, they said you are a BA, you are not a legal. So why you are coming with this? So it's very specialized process uh, and takes time. Some countries are faster. Some countries are late, uh, are more difficult to get it. Uh, in particular, Europeans are very difficult to get the, uh, the bachelor's degree. You need to go for one entity they call Saudi Cultural Attache, the SACM. And, uh, but then you have the business visa, which is very easily to process, uh, or the tourism visa. Now they're changing different visas for the purposes. The, the important thing to have is that they are taxing make taxes in the family. So sometimes when you are moving, relocating, uh, you need to consider that you need to pay for the family a certain amount of money to have them living in the Saudi, in Saudi. So, well, uh, yeah, visa is always um, a challenging part there, but now to visit Saudi is very easy. You can apply online. If you go for business also, it's very easy to get it, so yeah. It's just for work. And I think so with the mega projects they will have, what we are looking with our colleagues is probably the rules should change. Saudis need to to release a little bit that part of the of the work visas because they need it for for the entire country. Yeah, it sounds it sounds like I mean, by the way, every visa system globally is 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 not smooth. Um, but part of the journey, I think a lot of all of the countries that understand that they need to acquire talent in a competitive way are trying to do something to make it easier for companies and organizations to hire the people that they need. It, it sounds like in Saudi it needs to be offer first. So um the, the the company needs to have made an offer to you before you can then apply. Um, and then when you apply, you need to then obviously have the right criteria uh, onto the, the, so a different type of visa. So there's multiple visas that you can potentially get. You need to be aligned to that. Um, and then, of course, the company needs to map that against their internal work population to ensure um, that they have the, the right percentages in terms of the 
uh, uh, the localization mix. So it's, it's probably one of the more challenging visas to get through there. But that strikes me as there's not kind of an opportunity. There's probably a mini mini industry that, that deals with this, right? Um, whenever there's like a high friction scenario, there's usually someone providing a lubrication there. So uh, probably there's somebody listening in here that are thinking, yeah, it's, it's my business making tons of money on it. On it. Um, okay, very, very interesting. Um, let's talk about, uh, sorry, Hisham, you're about, you're about to say something? Yeah, no, I, I was just about to say, I mean, it's probably mystical for someone who's not familiar with the region, but it's less complicated than we think it is, right? If you get an offer and you're not in Saudi Arabia, I mean, the responsibility to make sure you fit within the quotas is not yours, it's the company's, right? So the company takes the, if, if, you're, if, you, if, you're, if you're getting an offer, you have pretty much a guarantee that you will fit in, right? So that's number one. In terms of the, um, I would say the transactional, well, that's pretty straightforward. And it's the same that you'll find in Saudi Arabia, in the UAE, and so on and so on. You have a sponsor locally, then you get a, with the job offer, you apply for your visa, then you get your entry permit, then you do your medical check. Uh, for those who are new to the country, they do a HIV test, they do a syphilis test, they do a few other things. And if you're cleared, then the visa, uh, before it was uh, stamped on your passport, but now it's given electro electronically. So it's, it's, it's less sophisticated or, or cumbersome that we think it is uh, as soon as, uh, as long as you, you get an offer in hand. That's what I'm trying yeah, to say. Yeah, th that's a great um, addendum, uh, Hijam. Uh, one quick question I want to ask as well, uh, which I forgot to ask earlier was, is the visa like the, uh, employer dependent um, or is it like for a fixed time whereby, because one of the things I've noticed, and this is actually really interesting in the US with obviously with the H-1B visas they have over there, employer dependent, loads of people getting laid off on tech uh, on, on, on H-1Bs and, and like they have to find another job in 60 days or something and otherwise they're gone. Um, and it's like, this person might have actually lived there for 10 years. He's, he's kids at school, you know, he's married a local person, whatever it is, but he's on the wrong visa. He's been laid off and suddenly he or she needs to go find a job in a very limited space of time in order to even stay in the country. That strikes me as a terribly unjust scenario. Hopefully the US will, will fix that. But I, I just wonder whether the same thing might actually be the case also in Saudi, where it's dependent on the company. If you leave the company, then boom, you've got a limited time before you need to leave. Yeah, well, when you have the offer, you can stay there. And I don't know if anything changed, but you can change company to company from two years or something like that. So, but but talking about the, 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 the visa, uh, I need to, to tell this is, isn't, I mean, I agree that it's easy and, and sometimes it's not difficult, but sometimes you if you, if you don't know the process, um, you can expand three months to get that work visa or even more. And and Saudi changed. Now, last December, they, they joined the up the, the, the Hague Convention. So yeah, they don't need the legalization, they need apostille. So if you go as a candidate and you did your legalization and you arrived to your to the Saudi embassy and they said, No, no, you need an apostille. So now I have a lot of in particular in LATAM. LATAM, I, I deal with Brazil, with Argentina. I process the visas for Sabic Aramco, and I know how hard it is. I can't tell you that it's like, just go there, keep your list, and go. No, no, it's tricky. 
Argentinians, for example, one engineer in Argentina should send their degree to Spain to get a second. Well, if you don't explain and you don't start with that process at the beginning, they can lose their job because they, the Saudi company cannot wait too long to have him on board. So, I mean, it's, it's a compliment. You need to work on that very, very, very. And then the families has, you need to arrive there uh, first and then process your family visas. So let's, let's do one example. If you're living in Kuwait and you're moving to Saudi Arabia, what are you going to do with your family? You will leave it in Kuwait or you take it to Saudi? Okay, as you can move from country to country, you move it to Saudi. Then they need to leave Saudi to apply for the visa in his home country. Oof. Oof. So, I mean, uh, it's... The, I, I, I think, think... Go ahead, yeah, Katrina. Yeah, hang on, I was just going to say, you know, I and I've uh, probably let you cross, well, I've worked all around the world and, and you know, recruiting people into different countries in my career. Um, and, and Hung said it before, visa process is never easy um i've actually been massively massively impressed at how sophisticated it is um in the gulf region given it's been a comparatively short space of time i've been beyond impressed if i compare it to here in the uk <laughs> i have to say i reckon i reckon there's several streets ahead of us at the minute um so so i think there's a lot to be Mended there, and I, I kind of I agree as well with what Hitchin's saying. I'm already seeing how the digitization is coming more and more into that journey. I I would put some money on a bet that I think in the next couple of years the region is probably going to be held up as one of the areas in the world that has the best immigration process for movement of workers, uh, high skilled workers in particular. Um, but let let's see. Let's check in in two years. Hung, we'll do another one and see if I'm right on that. Well, it's a global world tour, so there's like lots of places for us to visit, and then yeah, hopefully it'll be be be, be uh won't be two years before we're able to do another. Maybe one that's what we do. We just apply for we apply for work visas in different countries ourselves, and then have a league table, right? Yeah, that's probably the <laughs> only way to test it. Um, <laughs> folks, we're really like coming to the end of the show, and we haven't covered half the things we want to cover. But let me just quickly rattle through things as quickly as I can. Um, I want to try and apply some of the like global issues that are happening in the world of recruiting. Let's dump them into Saudi Arabia and the Middle East. And what is it? What does it mean there? Uh, shift to remote. Um, everyone was saying, "Oh my God, everyone's going to remote." Uh, you know, there's a big change in the world, etc. Now, you know, people are saying, "Let's get back to the office." Was that a, ever a movement in Saudi? Did that ever happen? Uh, is there a demand for people to stay at home, or is it less actually we're back in the office? That's happening. What is the theory here? Uh, we can't go around, so I'm just have to select a person to, to answer it. So, Majed, let's give this one to you. Remote working. What is the status in Saudi? It was at, at the peak during um, um, COVID. After you know relieving the restrictions, uh, more and more people are coming back to offices. But now it's one of the uh, typical norms of work however the majority are still in offices yet it's one available option of uh, as a mode of work however during COVID, everybody was 100 percent remote mm -hmm. 
Very, very good. Um, okay, we need to talk about things like chat GPT, folks. Um, it's obviously caused <laughs> chaos in the world of recruitment. Um, there's also like lots of concerns about using it, right? Like, okay, uh, what's the ethics of like, you know, mass sending messages to people that, you know, are not really personalized, but look really convincingly personalized. Um, there's also data security issues. There's also all kinds of questions going on. Um, what's happening in Saudi and, and the Gulf? Are, are recruiters using chat GPT? Is it a thing? Uh, can you even use it? I know it's not always available in different parts of the world. So what is the status here? Uh, Hicham, have you got any thoughts on this? Yeah, well, ChatGPT is available in Arabic. So uh, hopefully you can leverage it to do some um, you know, the, the transactional things that you that's going to help you do your work uh, every day. Um, what I can say, and not only about ChatGPT, it, I believe that this or the whole technology stack that you use for your work every day is actually an enabler that will only augment you in the way you perform your work and it will enhance the experience around you. So it's not the one chat GPT would replace PowerPoint or will replace Excel and do things on your behalf, but uh, chat GPT will certainly help accelerate the, uh, the way you, uh, you perform your daily tasks that are basically repetitive, right? So that's my two cents on chat GPT. No, and very good value two cent it is. I'm going to keep blasting through some questions before we kick ourselves off air. Um, sourcing. Um, I'm looking for candidates. Um, everyone else in the world uses LinkedIn. Is LinkedIn equally dominant in Saudi Arabia and the Gulf? Or is there another local network? Are there different types of ways to find candidates? What are your thoughts on this? Carlos, how about you? Give you a shot on this. Well, yeah, we are using um, different technologies, but in Saudi Arabia, let's say in the last, we start uh, working with a new technology that uh, we call Tintelo. This is that is um, promoting in LinkedIn and uh, Google and Facebook and so on. And we are having a great results. We have building like more than 30,000 people in, in our in our database in the last four months. So I think so the, the country will renovate the sourcing and the technologies. And, and that is what is the challenging part in Saudi Arabia. A quick, quick question for everybody here. If I'm going to hire people, do I post an advert or do I source for the person? Um, what is generally the method mechanism? Uh, this is a very interesting issue because I remember having this, con I think we were doing uh, how to hire in China, for instance. Like, do you even source in Chinese? How do you even do that? Um, and it turns out, actually, no, it's more advert driven. So um, is, is the same thing happening in Saudi where it's, you've got to post an ad to get a candidate? Um, or do, is there a way in which you could get a database and look at look uh, and try and find them? Um, how does it work in in the area? Both are viable. Yeah, both are, both are viable, but definitely you'll be sourcing and headhunting depending on uh, the scarcity and the abundance of the of the talents. So if I'm if I'm hiring for for a niche, definitely I'm I'm gonna be uh, sourcing and headhunting because the majority will be even passive candidates. You'll almost have none of the of the great talents as an active. And if you're looking for a, a frontlining, uh, let's say role or a role that has an abundance in terms of you know the. Uh, uh, pool of candidates, then um, yes, you can utilize the job ads and you can even screen them through whatever AI tools and any assessment centers you have already deployed. So now even locally in Saudi, we, it's it's even trending to have ATSs with 
uh, AI capabilities to do even video uh, passive interviews, and they will do most of the shortlisting with a higher, uh, you know, credibility. So given the high volume of the hirings, you do the posting to the um, screening and selection, etc., almost based on um, with the support of AI. Uh, whenever the uh, talents are, are kind of scarce, you no, know, definitely you'll have uh, to do it. You know the. Um, You'll be, you'll be headhunting people mainly. And LinkedIn is the dominant uh, for talking about professional jobs and above. Uh, for some other, you know, um, uh, clerical and other uh, types of jobs, there are even governmental agencies that could even support the employers with the uh, relative uh, and relevant uh, databases of, of candidates. Yeah, very, very good. Um, okay, we're out of time, we, but there's a couple more questions I do need to ask. Um, the first thing is, uh, go to one of the questions actually being asked as a question. Are there lots of contractor roles versus perm? Um, I mean, can we can we say something generally about this? Um, like, is the is the contracts that people sign uh, are they indefinite in the sense of you know what you've signed a contract that's basically going on until either side decides no, or is it generally like a fixed term deal? You say okay, we've got a two year contract, and then you know we review it. How does it work generally in Saudi? For for it's expatriates, it's um, I'm sorry, Carlos. It's it's based on the um, it's linked with the work permit. Uh, it's mm -hmm. on an annual basis, and most of the hirings are happening even if the contract is annual and is uh, is renewed. And by the way, the default of contracts is renewed automatically unless stated by any other uh, party by by a party to the other with 60 days notice of the wish of non-renewal and so on. For the locals, they also go through either annual contracts or open-end or indefinite contracts. And if they renew their contracts for three years in a row, it becomes an open-ended contract. Yeah, that sounds very similar to the Dutch method. I think I think for, for the Dutch, it's like you can only renew twice before it becomes default, like open-ended, and then they, they have whatever rights there. Okay, let's talk about gender. We have to talk about this as a final thing. Uh, outside of the area, outside of the region, there's also a big perspective to say, okay, uh, these things happen, these things don't happen. Um, what is the scenario um, in Saudi Arabia today when it comes down to hiring uh, women? Uh, is there certain roles? Is there certain things that are permitted? What are the rules? What are the guardrails that people need to be aware of? If you are a woman, you decide to move to Saudi Arabia, let's say, what are the rules there? So can we quickly overview that situation? Um, anybody want to go uh, answer this one? Yeah, um, I mean, it's... Um... Uh, Saudi Arabia has made a significant progress when it comes to promoting the gender equality and improving the rights of, uh, of women. Uh, and you can see a few examples like uh, what uh, enhancing women's rights, including allowing them to obtain a passport, uh, travel abroad without a male guardian permission, uh, register marriages and divorces. So these are things that we, we can't just go past them. So there's a, the platform is there. Uh, to allow more and more women to come into the workforce and, and, uh, and, and work in Saudi Arabia. I mean, obviously, uh, the local uh, you know, culture, etc., uh, would invite women to also observe uh, you know, the uh, you know, cultural traditions of Saudi Arabia. And I think this is pervasive, not only for women. It applies to, to men also. Anyone who works in a foreign country uh, has, uh, you know, to be mindful of the local traditions and uh, the way things done uh, on the ground. But essentially, I mean, if I'm talking to you, what, uh, 20 years ago and right now, there's an ex exceptional significant leap. Yeah, this is it's what up, I've been... Sorry, go ahead, Carlos. It's open, it's open for females. I mean, in the more traditional 
energy companies, they said, Carlos, we are looking also females. Because this is the question that you said, okay, you need the geologist, geophysicist, whatever. She said, open. So it's great. Yeah, this is actually what I heard from, uh, again, someone who's got great experience in Saudi Arabia. That actually, one of the biggest kind of opportunities is actually the uh, the workforce that might now come into the marketplace. Uh, the, the female workforce that previously had been, let's say, a lower number, but there's a huge uh, pot potential there. Um, and, and sort of basically the, the amount of human capital that you can apply to the economy is actually now becoming a critical scenario for lots of countries uh, simply because of demographics. Um, you know, you look at declining populations worldwide, for instance, and you think, oh my goodness, where are the workers coming from? And actually other countries are trying to solve it with immigration or whatever it might be. But uh, Saudi potentially might have the opportunity with the youth of the population and of course the untapped labor, uh, relatively untapped labor force of, uh, of, of women. So very interesting scenario. And you see, it feels like it's a place of change, um, which is gonna be very exciting. We haven't even talked about the line. We haven't talked about any of these mega projects. <laughs> we, uh, basically means we have to do a part two on this topic. Uh, one hour is <laughs> never enough to do it, uh, but we have to come to an end of the show now. So uh, thank you everybody for joining. I uh, hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, we're gonna keep doing these types of tours um uh, uh you know whenever we get the opportunity and whenever it's relevant i think it's very very important uh, that we speak to local people to understand the local perspective rather than just accept the external view uh because oftentimes the nuance ain't there and we don't even know we, we, we're overly accepting of uh uh you know the external view uh when in fact you, you got to get down on the ground and you gotta you gotta know what's going on um okay uh let's say goodbye to our guests thank you very much for joining us hicham wonderful to meet you uh majed my pleasure to meet you thank you so much for responding to my message and uh, agreeing to come on uh carlos great to see you i know you're in colombia right now so uh, um, uh thank you for getting up early i guess um <laughs> i wouldn't do it um so, fine. Is here. yeah it's fine katrina wonderful to see you as well um we'll catch up soon um thank you so much for joining everybody uh we'll see you next week we're back on friday what are we talking about uh brain food live is going to be talking about something great yes we're going to be talking about the state of the recruitment marketplace uh, so it's been a crazy time everyone knows that oh my goodness are recruiters losing jobs? Are recruiters getting jobs? Where are the jobs exactly? We're going to get Horsefly Analytics, who are a talent intelligence organization. They're going to help us track actually the volume of recruiter jobs out there and where they're distributed in which industries and which regions. It's going to be a fascinating show uh, for you to take part in. I highly recommend you join it. Uh, make sure you follow the channel if you're interested in getting uh, in updates and information on that. Okay, that's about it, folks. Um, have a good weekend, everybody. We'll let you go now. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank Have a good one, everybody. Wow, wasn't that interesting, folks? Um, so much more to talk about. Um, I, I get frustrated that we're only doing one hour. I really am. I'm thinking, is it worth expanding it to two? And then, you know, obviously everyone's going to say, the whole everyone's going to be bored for two hours. But Obviously, 60 seconds to 60 minutes is not enough. Uh, anyway, folks, that's it. Um, you have a good day. I will see you next week.